0: Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrull, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured, for better and sometimes worse, across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast.
1: Damien, how are you sir? Very good, very good. The sun's shining, it's a beautiful morning.
0: Yes, you're um, up in uh, Dorset Way, I believe. Yeah, that's right. So, um,
1: yeah, I live out in the middle of nowhere in Dorset. Very peaceful, great for writing. And great great during lockdown, I have to say. If you're going to be anywhere, this was okay, yeah.
0: Yes. Are you anywhere near the Isle of Purbeck, by any chance? Yeah, yeah, about,
1: I don't know, 15, 20 minutes drive away. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I've got a good friend that's, um, he's got a house, like a holiday house there. Gosh, you know a thing about making films and writing books, Damien, hey? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I spent the best part of 40 years doing it. Yeah, almost, approaching. So, yeah, it's in the blood, I guess. Um, You know, straight after um, school and university, first thing I did was um, headed off to Africa um, on an expedition. We went overland in Land Rovers and... um, yeah, we made a film we'd never made a film before. We made a a documentary about, about, you know, kind of. Yeah. In in central set in Central Africa and it won an award. And then
0: that was it. I was just, uh, you know, um, Damien, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, mate. Every time you go like that, it's is it we're we're losing the audio. It's I think it's you might be hitting the cable on your headphones. Okay. sorry. I feel really rude saying this. that's all
1: right. That's fine. We've got to get the audio good. Is that better?
0: Yeah. Every time you move, literally, it sounds like someone's dragging a crisp packet across the top of the table. Okay.
1: That's bizarre. Right. I'll have to
0: check that out. All right. OK. If I go like that, you know, you know, that's our signal. Yeah. OK. So, yeah. So sorry. How did how did you get into the film?
1: Yeah. So we um we just had this kind of like, you know, this, you know, when you've got like this burning desire to do something and you um nothing's going to stop you It's one of those moments. Uh, we none of us had any experience, really, at all in doing anything like that. But we set off. We you know we took camera gear, and uh, I guess we, you know, we trained ourselves on the job. You know, we learnt on the job, as you sometimes do. And in a way, it kind of gave it a really refreshing perspective because, you know, when you're not a professional at, at doing something, okay, it can be a bit rough and ready around the edges. But it also means that you, you can come up with some pretty insightful material, yeah, because you don't go with any preconceptions. So. We made this we made this documentary um, and as I say we won the wild screen award which BBC World Wildlife and wild Screen award so it's about you know kind of films about wildlife and the environment and um, it you know it's it's a pretty prestigious thing to have got so that was like a you know a, 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 you know lift off massively into that world and then next thing I did was I headed off into a war zone in fact it was in in Asia and um, again you know no experience of being in a conflict zone i mean parts of the africa trip had been hairy if you can imagine it we drove from the uk all the way to cameroon and the congo so you know you you through Niger, nigeria algeria libya on the way back so there were some pretty hairy countries we got we, we went through but you could do it back then you know it was It was doable i wouldn't want to do it now certainly not with the way you know al-qaeda in the maghreb are causing trouble in a lot of those regions so after that as i say we went went to asia with a sound recordist friend of mine neither of us had any experience in war zones and we basically embedded ourselves with the um with the rebels stroke freedom fighters in burma for best part of the year and you know made another film and again that was um that ended up on Channel Four, and that that won another um, uh, BBC award. So, you know, kind of really sometimes, if you're going to forge a path in a career that you really want to do, sometimes you've just got to get out there and do it, and take the risks that are that, that are associated with it. And in fact, it's an interesting story. When I to make the Burma film, because it wasn't um it wasn't commissioned, uh, we would never have got a commission. You know, we'd never been in award war zone, never really made. A, a documentary of any of you know not for broadcast before so we had to i had to self-fund it and and i would had a, a, a an appallingly bad motorcycle accident when i was uh 20 21 i was a big i was a big biker and um smashed myself up really badly and um i used the compensation money from that accident to fund that that, that documentary
0: wow and have the the Burma documentary what what's the name of the freedom fighters there well there the, there were there were any
1: number um the ones we were embedded with with the Karen so these were Karen that, yeah, yeah. So, so so these guys fought with the british against the japanese in world war 2 and i'll tell you one of the most memorable things that happened when we were there we would go into a village right and the oldest guy in the village would come out wearing his medals from the war you know and these guys who fought with the Chindits, with Wingate's Chindits, you know all about the Chindits, of course, they were, you know, they were akin to the SAS in Burma. They, they, these guys did deep behind the lines operations in the Burmese jungles, basically a few British soldiers and officers with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Karen Karenni Chin Kachin rebels or sorry, uh, you know, uh, tribal fighters fighting with them against the Japanese. Extraordinary stories, and these guys—you know—old guys would come out of their, of their huts, bamboo huts on stilts, with their medals, saying, "Yes, you know, we were part of the chindits. And at the time, you know, we're not taught this stuff at schools. I had no idea, and I I was absolutely, yeah, I was absolutely riveted by these guys' stories. Mm -hmm. um Not what we went there for, but that's the extraordinary thing about when you go to some of these places—you, you end up coming across stories that you know are remarkable, and you uncover stuff that you had no idea was there.
0: And that was, um, that was savage fighting, wasn't it? I mean, there was no, the expression, no prisoners. I, I, I'm guessing that that would apply to conflict in Burma, would it not?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, in World War Two, when the Japanese were there, it was it was some of the worst, most. Yeah. Some of the stories that, that you know, stories of guys, you know, British soldiers going and having to you know burn the Japanese bodies the dead with flamethrowers because the smell of the decomposition of the body was was unbearable you know really yeah some of the stories from the Burma theater are some of the darkest of World War II and then you fast track to the modern day of course the country's now at peace but when we were there there was a brutal and bitter civil war going on and you know the kind of kind of things that happened there were shocking in the extreme and you know we filmed a lot of that stuff but at one stage you know we were we were embedded as i say with about a hundred of the karen fighters and the burmese military hunter sent in several hundred i mean thousands of troops to to track us down because they heard there were these you know british filmmakers there you know trying to expose what they were up to and you know that was yeah it's pretty um that was pretty uh yeah um that was pretty heavy um and and, and in that process we witnessed and filmed the kind of awful uh, abuses that you know that that were perpetrated largely on the civilians you know men women and children people who shouldn't be the targets of war but they were there and they they very often are as you know in in the world today
0: yes war is not a not a pleasant thing at all is it and the um We're we're suffering the after effects of two conflicts now with this epidemic of veterans suicides.
1: You're absolutely right. You know, I mean, how many times have I had, you know, veterans here in my study with me telling me their stories and I'll be honest with you, crying their hearts out, you know, and I know they've got PTSD and they know they've got PTSD. They might, I mean, one guy in particular, I remember. You know, we, we wrote a fantastic book together and absolutely I won't say who it is because it's probably not fair, but we wrote a really, really brilliant, cracking, riveting tale from Afghanistan. And um, you know, he was on the edge when we were when we were talking about the story. And since the publication of the book, he became very difficult to deal with. And then he called me about, I don't know, six months ago and said, Look, no, I just wanna apologize. I said, what for? I didn't apologize for anything. He said, I was, a, I was a real idiot. He said, I now know why I've got PTSD. I've been diagnosed. I'm getting help. I was like, well, you know, thanks for telling me. Um, you know, but, but, but I knew that at the time. I could tell it. You know, it, it was obvious to me, and I'm really glad you're getting what you need now. So, yeah, we have, uh, you could say we're reaping the whirlwind. We sent these young men to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they've, you know, witnessed terrible things they've seen their best mates blown up by ieds and kidnapped and i mean you know just really bad stuff and um you know we've brushed these walls under the carpet haven't we it's not like it's not like fighting in world war Two. you came back from world war Two, and you were rightly heroes and you know we celebrated a momentous victory on behalf of freedom and the civilized world. But the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're kind of like, well, they're a bit of an embarrassment. We'll just forget they ever happened. And how does that make the guys who fought them feel? Yeah,
0: it's um, it's a quagmire. You know, it's a quagmire. And uh, well, let's just say uh, people need to be brought to justice. And unfortunately, that's that's never going to happen. Um, Blair still walks the streets scot free responsible for the massacre of what must be over a million people and that's probably a conservative figure um Bush yeah you know, just got to look at that guy's laugh to see how much respect he holds for not just their servicemen you know their servicemen but 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 ours
1: that that's the worst thing of all isn't it when you see you see and you hear world leaders disrespecting the sacrifice made by servicemen from the world war ii through to the present day i mean how dare they Mm -hmm. especially when so many of them have never even set foot in a war zone either as a witness or a combatant do you know what i mean yeah i mean you know i i have i've been in many 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 you know war zones and conflict situations and generally you know, I've been there with a camera because I, I I was generally a cameraman, um. You know, alongside guys who are fighting, the, the, you know, the the, the the at the hard end of the conflict, and you share a brotherhood in that situation. But these world leaders who feel they can disrespect the the actions and the sacrifice, you know, how many of them have actually been there at the hard end? Because if they had, they wouldn't be like that, would they? Let's be frank about it.
0: No, of course not, but as i say a lot in my podcast the these people are sociopaths they they don't know empathy they don't know love they just know the greed of of the power that money gets them yeah and they don't have the they don't make that connection that that when they come up with these mickey mouse conflicts that that's somebody's son somebody's brother yeah somebody's father which is just the most hideous yeah, I mean there's veterans committing suicide now that have three children yeah what the hell yeah and you can guarantee the next trick they play to come up with another phony conflict half the veterans will be yeah let, and it's like don't you learn <laughs>
1: you know yeah I've got, I've got a bit, I've got a very good good friend who's a former SAS guy regiment guy and the thing about all of this stored up trauma it can hit you at any time mm. you know it can hit you 10 years 15 years later 20 years later and this guy is just facing up to it now he's very open about it I mean Phil Campion you've probably seen him you know um you know on social media and things and he's just facing up to it now And the, you know for him he's starting to grow you know, to grasp with the the issues that his time in 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 service is now bequeathing him 10, 20, 30 years down the line. And it's a brave thing to do. And it, it's a very brave thing to do to go out there and speak about it publicly. I've got huge admiration. Here you have this big bear of a macho man. That's where everybody sees him saying, actually this has messed me up. So, mm. you know, um it, it's something to really bear in mind. It can hit you at any stage of your life and, it, and when it does and if it's 10 20 30 years down the line and you can't initially see the connection because it's so far after the events that's when you need you know professional help
0: yeah and i mean he was in sierra leone wasn't he and yeah you know the 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 term child soldier is that that, that that's a term for a reason so your enemy are children
1: yeah um, yeah i mean you know that that obviously the SAS went in and did a an absolutely fantastic job on Operation Barris. I mean, they were there for a very specific reason. We had, you know, British soldiers been kidnapped by the West Side boys and, uh, you know, the rebels, and they were in, in, in grave, mortal danger. Mm. But doesn't alter the fact that you went into a village, an African village, it, to all intents and purposes, it was the rebel base, but still an African village and an awful lot of the combat Combatants, there are children, and you know, you know the score in Syria. You know, when the RUF, the Revolutionary United Front, started that civil war, they had no coherent ideology or aim other than spreading utter and total terror. Mm -hmm. If they had an ideology, it was let's let's seize the country and rule by terrorizing everybody. And their means of doing so, their signature means, was amputation. So you get long sleeves or short sleeves, they'd ask you. Long sleeves was at the wrist, uh, short sleeves was at the elbow, and they'd amputate you, men, women, children, you know, hundreds of thousands of them. Mm. And and the way they recruited their child soldiers, you know, it's really horrific to speak about, but, you know, they, they would go into a village and they would make the kids, the boys, carry out horrendous atrocities, often against their own family, and then they'd say, right, you can never go back to your village or your family because you've done these terrible things. We are your family. Yeah. The, the RUF is your only family. And that's, you know, these, we're talking 13, 12, 13, 14-year-old kids, and they, are the, they became the rebels' cannon fodder. So, you know, so you had guys like Phil going in and carrying a, an incredible mission, but they still went up against, you know, that kind of mm. group of, of, of competence. Tough,
0: really tough. Can I just clarify, Damien? For for our friends at home, we're not suggesting if a child comes at you with an AK forty seven that they're any less dangerous than an adult. We're not saying that. Absolutely what, not. Of course what, not. What we're saying is, is our heroic service men and women have have to combat that threat.
1: Yeah. Then I, I, they've
0: got to then they've got to come home and live yeah. that experience. Absolutely. Just try try to imagine it on yeah. your on your mind every yeah. waking moment right. haunting your dreams that's right um, i mean you know i've had guys ex- you know describe
1: it like this to me you know i wake up in the night and i still see them parading through my room you know the, the those they they vanquished uh so it going in and doing those kind of missions absolutely the right thing and you know rightfully um you know applauded and um you know I, I wrote a book about the sierra Dane mission operation certain death mm-hmm. um, you know it's um it's an incredible story what we're talking about is you know the ability to then process and deal with that afterwards and recognize there may be issues and be open about that and have support structures in place and what you know so many guys have told me phil included is that if you do raise it and you're still in the services and certainly this this may not still be the case, but it has been the case historically, you know, several things would fall out of that. One, you'd get the piss taken out of you because you were showing weakness. But two, probably more importantly, you know, someone would come and say, are you really fit for operational missions now? Because you, you have a problem here. So you'd be taken off the hard end, which is where everyone wants to be. So, you know, Dealing with it and processing it. We need to, structures, mechanisms need to be in place, genuinely in place in the armed services to deal with it at the time.
0: Yes, of course. Um, I think once you start showing signs of of trauma uh, or they start to come to the surface, because of a lot of us, we joined up with trauma. That was probably a big part of the reason we, you know, we joined an elite force is that we we were already missing you know something in our lives, and we we needed that 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 challenge um but when it comes to the service I, surface, I think traditionally the military military has been quite quick to get rid of you um, you know provide some token sort of therapy uh and that in itself we we don't know much about there's so many different fer- therapies available not all of not all of which will work for every person and there's some very forward-thinking therapists um uh writing books and and stuff now and again it's just i think it's a whole area the gov the the governments of the world and the the money mafia have quite been quite happy that that no one goes there because it just it reflects back on them what what are you doing sending our teenagers you know often a soldier you're a teenager what 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 you do you know we need we have a duty of care don't we if people are going to sign up and offer to give lay down their life for you and i we have a duty of care not to use them to go and make profit for the oil companies and the bankers and the yeah and the money mafia as i call them but uh moving on yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> moving on not not moving not so swiftly on um when did your um i'm guessing your fascination then with the the uh, uh or your i don't know fascination is the right word but your interest in the sas did that develop from burma or was this something that's no,
1: been there? It, i'll tell you where it came about it, and it was pure serendipity so i was in the sudan which again you know was at the time Africa's longest running civil war. Um, you know, 3.5 million people dead, mostly civilians, um, been going on for decades. And I reported from there for, you know, a decade, uh, you know, 60 probably separate trips. And I can remember flying into places in the sedan in a little tiny light aircraft, which no one had been there since World War II again. And the the, the pilot just touching the wheels down on this you know, it looks like a piece of flat bog. That's the airstrip they've prepared, just to see if it's firm enough. Do you get my drift? Touches the wheels yeah, down.
0: Yeah.
1: Comes around for another touchdown. Comes around for third. Puts down in a cloud of dust. You jump off, and the people are like, wow, no one's no one's visited here since World War Two. Um, and so I was on a I was on a Sudan, you know, um, uh, reporting film mission, and I happened to have with me a guy. In fact, he's a former Kiwi SAS guy called Mike, who um. Was my kind of cameraman security on that on that trip and we would sat around you know one evening around the fire talking and and he got he got on to telling me the story of operation paris the serial rescue mission i said that is just the most unbelievable story he said yeah well I know, I know some of the you know some of the veterans and i know some of the hostages too who were rescued and put you in touch with them all so he did in due course and you know and and i've thought this story needs to be told you know it needs to be told for all the obvious reasons it's one of the most heroic and daring missions carried out by british forces full stop but certainly elite forces since second world war without a shadow of a doubt. i mean the risks involved were just off the scale you know when they knew that the only way in was to fly in on chinooks and, and rope down into the village and all it takes is one guy on a, on a machine gun you know, who's alert at first light in the morning and they can blast one or up, both of them out of the sky and you've just lost 70, you know, elite forces. And, you know, and and, and the rebels had vowed in Sierra Leone to do a Somalia on the British, by which they meant, you know, Black Hawk Down, the movie about what happened to the Rangers and Delta Force in Somalia. The rebels were using that as their model in Sierra Leone as to what they wanted to do to us. So flying in on two Chinooks gave them the golden opportunity there's no other way into the base um they had intended to go up the river but the river was too too shallow and just sandbanks and just impassable and the jungle was like thick secondary jungle you just couldn't get through it so the only way was to fly in and he kind of tells me this story like wow that is the most unbelievable story of the mission and so um you know i i wrote the book and, and and um the uh, the rear admiral who was in charge of the um, the clearance committee at the time was really helpful. Basically, said, you know, look, you've probably spoken to some guys who maybe shouldn't have talked to you, but hell, you've told an amazing story, which is one of real heroism by forces, and I'm really glad you have. You have my blessing, um, and you know, publish the book, and 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 uh, you know, I hope it does the story justice. But that kind of triggered the interest, and you know, it then triggered an interest in the history of. I guess, the elite forces and, you know, where they came from, that takes you back to World War II, of course. And, you know, the, the wonderful thing about telling stories from World War II about, um, you know, elite forces, whether it's commandos or um, SAS, SBS, Popsky's private army, there were so many at the time, is that that's where they were born, that's where they were forged. And that gives you an incredible freedom to experiment and do stuff that no one's ever done before, because you're making it up as you go along. And bear in mind, it was it was a war for civilization and freedom, you know, against you know Hitler, who had vowed he was going to enslave the world, basically, um, you know, to 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 fascism and Nazism. So the stakes were they've never been higher, and you know the freedom to do what you need to do has rarely been higher, and it, because everybody was a volunteer and because most of them had very little military service. You had such an eclectic bunch of characters joining these forces you know you had lords and to the manor born through to you know street fighters from wigan through to actors and ballet dancers and and bank robbers and and and, and london city bankers and everything in between and somehow you know they rubbed along and Mm -hmm. it worked and as sterling said you know the founder of the sas at the time you know there is no room for class in this in this organisation, this is about merit above rank. Yes, rank is necessary because you need a, a hierarchical structure in any military operation. But you will only get respect and you will only get command if you earn it. So they forged all these these, these kind of founding precepts of of, of of special operations forces, which have you know lasted through to this day. And another thing that you know Sterling said, which again, what's the basic building block of the SAS? It's the four man team. And Sterling said, you know, we will operate in four-man teams. What's the reason for that? It's 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 several fold. One, you're 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 not particularly noticeable behind the lines because there's only four of you. You can hide reasonably easily. Secondly, if there's only four of you. Think of the bonds forged between you as four individuals deep behind the lines on long-running operations. Absolutely, really rigidly tight bonds. And thirdly, if you're only deploying in four-man units, and you've only got an 80 strong force, that sit still means you can de- deploy at any one time any number of those four-man teams, and so you become a force multiplier. A small band of highly trained men can go into a situation and really, really make a difference You know, behind the line raiding operations. And all those concepts that were founded then in that crucible of North Africa at the time know still hold true to today so that's the kind of you know i wrote first the reasonably modern mission and then you know reverse back from there into world war ii because it's it's great to unearth the you know the crucible the founding concepts uh, and those characters those amazing towering characters i mean you know blair main you know four times dso should have got the vc definitely what a character you know i mean an Irish rugby international, you know, played for the British Lions, trained lawyer, you know, um, in his early 20s, you know, um, mm. after Stirling's capture in 43, he commands the SAS pretty much through the rest of the war. You know, a man who, you know, his best friend who was killed on the first ever SAS operation was a Southern Irish Catholic called Ian McGonagall, you know, mm. um, a man who who stenciled shamrocks on the Jeeps. You know, because he was like any, any uh, you know, we are a broad church Ed, Any any individuals, uh, you know, welcome and we'll fight under the Irish shamrock, because why not? Um, you know, a man who had any number of Germans, you know, when the S.A.S. came back from uh, from North Africa and Italy operations, it's really interesting in kind of late, late um, 43, early 44. So they were recalled to the U.K., obviously improved preparation for D-Day operations. And they came back as this kind of like piratical band of war-bitten raiders, many of whom had more decorations than any number of of, of, of top commanders in the UK. Um, but they were pretty lawless, and they weren't exactly parade ground smart, spit and polish. Uh, and, and and they had every nationality under the sun in their ranks. They had French Foreign Legionnaires, Spanish Civil War veterans. They had, you know, white Russians. Uh, they had. But they had also had quite a number of Germans, and the reason they had Germans is because, obviously, German Jews, Austrian Jews fleeing the Holocaust, end up a lot of them ended up in what was then uh, the British Protectorate of Palestine, and from there in North Africa they were recruited into the Middle East Command, or then from there into the SS. So you had any number of German-speaking Jews who were now, you know, war-bitten members of the SS, some very highly decorated, because as you can imagine, you know who is more who's got less to lose you know you you you've seen your family you know perish in the concentration camps a lot of these mm-hmm. guys had they'd escaped by the skin of their teeth your hatred of the nazi system and the enemy knows no bounds your 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 desire your burning desire to hit back is is unlimited and your your, your your willingness to take risks in that cause you know knows no bounds so these guys you know these they were used for some of the most outrageous missions imaginable
0: yes and um he was denied paddy main was denied his vc wasn't he because a lot of the acts he the courageous acts he carried out weren't witnessed by another officer did i get that right
1: well, I mean he you know, he he I, I was with his niece quite recently, literally about a week ago, um Fiona, um, and she's his nearest living relative and we talked about it again. And she said, you know, he never did it for the for the accolades. Absolutely true. Not for one moment did he. He did it to stand with his fellow soldiers. You know, and also he believed he was fighting in the cause of right, which of course he was. Um but no, I mean he was you know, the the VC was, you know, was signed off by Montgomery and somewhere higher up, it got blocked. And, you know, both the king at the time and David Sterling basically said, this is prejudice against a maverick Irishman. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unacceptable. But uh, of course, it's never been overturned. But he wasn't there for the medals. And so for the main family, it doesn't really matter. What matters is his record and that his, you know, his name and his legacy is rightfully remembered. And there is this tendency, and I don't like it, it's very convenient, isn't it, to stereotype him and others as mad, drunken Irishmen. Isn't that convenient? Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I lived in Southern Ireland for 10 years, loved the country, loved the people, you know. Um, You know, but it's a very easy stereotype, isn't it, Um, to portray him in that way. Um, you actually study the man and you actually go through his personal papers, as I have done, because Fiona, you know, allowed me to do so. You know, great privilege. This was a man of letters. Highly educated. He was a trained lawyer, you know, C- Queen's University, Belfast, um, you know, a man of letters. Do you know he carried? I think I've got it here. Just a second. He carried this book with him everywhere he went. Other man's flowers. It's an anthology of poetry. Yeah, I can't put my hand on it. I know it's right here. You know, this was a man who carried a book of poetry with him into war. It went with him everywhere he meant. Mm. you know. And if you read, you know, if you go through his war chests and read his letters that he sent to the parents or the wives or the children of those he'd lost, this is a man who felt every loss deeply in his heart, you know. And so people like to portray him as a sociopath, a psychopath, and, a, a, you know, a mad, drunken Irishman. It's a really easy stereotype, but it isn't the right one. You know, he was a towering individual. Speak to people who who, who went into combat alongside him. You know, he was held in such high esteem by those he fought with. And, and it's there, it's in their judgment that he should stand, not in the judgment of, of historians and commentators, you know, after the event. So, you know, you, you had this cast of characters from World War Two who were just extraordinary and incredible and the founding fathers, I guess, and, you know, um, telling their stories as a hell of a privilege.
0: Yes. Yeah, I said to you earlier, didn't I, I read, um, the latest Paddy, Paddy main biography by yeah. Hamish, Hamish Ro- Ross Hamish Ross. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize until I started reading some of the, um, some of the reviews on Amazon, just how much, um, infighting there is with respect to appreciating the different authors that have done his biography. Um as you said, a lot of them have tried to, to portray him as the, the drunken madman. Um not necessarily in a for, in a bad way, but but apparently but when once you read Hamish Ross's book, there's an awful lot more. More to the man, and it. I found myself quite emotional at the end. Really, but it, it, the, the whole his whole story just draws, draws you in, and
1: yeah. Listen, listen, and going back to what we were talking about earlier, what happened to Paddy Maine at the end of the war? Okay, think about this. Right, mm. you've soldiered for five or six years, and for most of that time, you've been on behind the lines operations. Right, sometimes several a week. Okay, you've seen your friends die in the most horrific ways. You've had to kill lots of the enemy. Right. You think of the cumulative trauma of that. okay? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the war, what happens to the SAS? October, they're disbanded because they were never popular, were they? Let's be frank about it. This lawless band of piratical raiders, you know, kept in a steel cage, bought out at the time of war, but not popular in a time of peace, were they? So at the end, by October 45, the SAS is disbanded, formally disbanded, and everyone is ordered to destroy all records and all documents. So what does Paddy Main do? Of course, he refuses that order. And it's a, it's a brilliant story. He'd stolen, you know, a, 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 a massive leather-bound book in Germany when they were fighting in Germany, which Hitler had given to the townsfolk of a certain town. It's like Hitler's doomsday book gives it to his favorite people. Maine took the book, right? Massive leather-bound tone, removed all the pages, and got all the SAS war diaries and records and everything else. And rather than destroying them, he banged them in that book. It was like his, his answer to everything that had happened, yeah? SAS being disbanded, etc. So he preserved the legacy. And then, you know, of course, you know, he's a man who dies prematurely. I've been to where, you know, where he, where he died in the late night car crash he drank too heavily you know look it's obvious what was going on with a poor guy this is a man who had really bad trauma after the war we would diagnose it today as ptsd obviously but there was none of that at the time um you know and so that's the legacy that 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 main all inherited and it wasn't until you know of course there was the ss war crimes investigation team but that, that, that shouldn't have existed because it, you know, which went on after the war through to 48, of course, which was a complete, uh, you know, covert operation because there was no SAS anymore. And that was funded privately from the War Office and all the rest of it. But it wasn't until the early, ni- late 1940s, early 1950s, the SAS was refounded. It was only refounded because suddenly, when it came to like the Malaya emergency in the Malaya jungles, we realized actually we really need these kind of guys because we're going to be fighting unconventional wars, and unconventional wars require special operations forces. And we don't have any more because we got rid of them. So they had to re the SAS in the early 50s. And it's fascinating, if you read the history you know, from then, um, Malaya and then Oman, it was refounded largely by the World War II veterans. They came back and said, OK, you need us again now, right. Well, we'll step into the breach. So you had all these towering individuals from World War Two who then refounded the regiment, the SAS and the SBS, you know, and it and so it continues to this day.
0: Yes, they had to justify themselves all the way through, didn't they? I mean, that 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 was a big part of um, reading that biography is the constant sort of having to Prove their worth to, uh, as as a unit within the British military, which is um, I don't think they had to do that after the Iranian embassy siege. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, they haven't since. You know, which is which is good. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, you know, how did they get founded in the first place? Well, you know, I absolutely believe that we have Churchill to thank for it. If he hadn't backed them all the way from the word go. They'd have never got off the ground because, you know, the British military was pretty much stuck in a World War One mindset at the start of the war, let alone a World War Two mindset, let alone a Special Operations Forces mindset. So it took Churchill to say, this is a brilliant idea. You know, I want, you know, thousands of these guys trained. I want no German to be able to sleep soundly in their bed at night. Mm. Yeah. Things like that he exhorted these guys to do. And lo and behold, you know, come 43, when the SAS and mainly the SBS are, you know, raiding across the Mediterranean. Yeah. German commanders report, you know, the British come like cats, come and leave like cats in the night. That's how scared they were. You know, it did exactly what it said on the tin. That's exactly what Churchill had asked for. And, you know, as the war progressed, you know, SAS and related units realized that, how do you spread terror and insecurity among the ranks of your enemy? Think about it. What what you, what do you do? Well, you kill the most senior-ranking commanders, because if you do that, every rank below them thinks, well, if that guy's not safe, and he's the general or the colonel or the lieutenant, you know, what, what hope is there for me? And so, you know, on operations, they would literally do things like like in in Operation Loiten in, in the Vosges Mountains. Um, which I read about in um, in The Nazi Hunters. You know, they, they would park their Jeeps hidden in the forest overlooking the road. They'd wait for a column of 50 vehicles to come along. They'd get All the trucks passed. And then three staff cars would emerge. They'd wait until the three staff cars were in range. They'd shoot the hell out of the staff cars, kill all the occupants. And that would be the shoot. And then the scoot part of the, of the raid would begin. And they'd get the hell out of there because they were there. And they, they, they used the phrase to cut the head off the Nazi snake. Mm-hmm. That's what they did. And it, it was so successful <laughs> that Hitler himself, it's fascinating, Hitler viewed British behind the, well, British and ally, behind the lines operations, right, as a personal insult to himself and his senior commanders, because he knew this is what we were doing. You know, like 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 I mean it wasn't an SOE operation, it, sorry, an SAS operation, it was SOE, but it's the same, it's the same family. So when we when we sent the the team in to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich in Prague, yeah, um, and, and which was successful, um, mm-hmm. you know, he realized we were targeting their senior ranks for this very reason. So Hitler decided it was personal against him and his top people, and so it became a personal mission of Hitler's to 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 wipe out our behind-the-lines operators, uh, you know. And he wrote his commando order, which was the the murder order: that all captured parachutists and commandos, whether in uniform, whether out of uniform, whether you know fighting or trying to surrender, will be given no quarter. Will only be kept alive for as long as it requires the SS and the Gestapo to interrogate them, and then they will be shot out of hand, you know that's Mm. so that's the effect they had it personally got to hitler himself
0: yes and it's very easy when you think of that order to think of these men as robots and killing machines but at the end of the day they were just british men weren't they from majority from working class backgrounds majority with i'm guessing with family or Obviously, all of them had families, but a significant amount had a wife and children at home. And and um uh, yeah, to, to to I mean, you imagine that moment when that that pass, that operator is executed. Suddenly, all the the SAS, the exterior, you know, the valor and the Brit that that drops away. It's it's just a British bloke who was trying to do his best for his country. And and I bet they um you know I bet they were brave right up until the last minute weren't they? You
1: yeah, know. there was so there were you know uh, on Operation Leutin in the in the Vogue you know uh, told in the Nazi Hunter so eighty parachute in right at the end thirty one are missing and, the, 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 and you know no one knows what's happened to them but so just one story of one of the fates of the many so a truckload of these SAS prisoners are taken out by the Gestapo and the SS into the French forests at night to be murdered. They know what's going to happen, right? And one by one, they're marched into the forest, stripped naked, and shot in the back of the head. And the last guy turns to his um, you know, turns to his escorts and says, We were good men. And those are the words that he goes to his execution with. So, mm. you know, but but those who survived that mission, for example, when they found out what happened to the 31 missing, yeah that's when they vowed that they would find the perpetrators and track them down and make sure they face justice and so they did you know that's that was the nazi hunting operation that lasted through to 1948 and rightfully so because you you know you you know i mean you, you your former military right your former elite forces you know the bonds you forge with your fellow soldier on the front line you'll you'll never have friendships like that again i mean i experienced it myself. I've not been there as a soldier, but I've been there as a cameraman um, and a reporter. And, you know, if you see and if you know that terrible things have happened to those closest friends of yours, of course, you're going to do everything you can to seek justice and vengeance.
0: Yes, because irregardless of what unit you're from, you're, you're, you're a professional soldier, the same as the enemy is, aren't you? You know, you, you, you. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess Geneva Convention <laughs> went out the window as far as, as... you
1: know, in, in World War Two, it was when well, now we're talking about the German side, it was the professional soldiers. So, the, you know, the, the, the even the Waffen SS, actually, and, and the Wehrmacht in particular, they. um, They abhorred the commander order, yeah to them, to take absolute heroes who deployed hundreds of miles behind the lines in tiny numbers and fought them so valiantly, to take them and murder, torture terribly and murder them. It was total anathema. Just one example, again, in, in, in the vote So the guy who's tasked with remaining... Can I, can I just say we, we we got that noise again, sorry. Yeah,
0: it, it's any time that you move, basically. Sorry.
1: Yeah, I'll try and stay still. So. The guy who remained at the base camp in 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 Operation Leuton when they had to um, end the mission and infiltrate back through the lines, that um, that they are ambushed and surrounded by the enemy, massive force of enemy troops, and eventually, you know, after a, a hours long firefight, they're out of ammunition and they're captured, and the SS com SS command Waffen SS commander comes up to it. The British commander, a lieutenant, shakes him by the hand and congratulates him on his bravery, you know. Mm. And then several weeks down the line, you know, that same group of captives are tortured horribly and then taken out and murdered. And this is not on the German side, this is not what professional fighting men wanted to do. You know, hit the sets in the commando order, it's the last thing in it. Any german commander who disobeys this order will be called before the high command to face the consequences so hitler obviously knew that you know his his fighting men would not want to do this and had to threaten them to make
0: sure it's carried out yes and yeah so i lost my train of thought um what i did want to um mentioned before I forget Damien is David Sterling was in Col- cold that's right yeah did did he try and escape I'm, I'm kind of guessing yeah so so St-
1: Sterling um tried any number of uh, escape attempts that's why he was sent to Colditz. he was sent to Colditz because that was obviously where the bad boys were sent the serial escapees um so yeah I mean he he had numerous escape attempts particularly in Italy, when he was held as a prisoner of war there. But, you know, the Germans realised fairly quickly that he was not going to stop doing this. So that's why they sent him to Colditz, which was supposedly escape proof.
0: Yeah, he had attempted to escape a few times, didn't he? That's right. Yeah. Yes. And was that after the commander? Well, I'm guessing the commander order must have been after that, if, if obviously they didn't execute him.
1: No, the commander order was authored in 92, right? And it, 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 several missions provoked it, uh, early commando, mainly commando operations, actually. Um, and But we didn't know about it. I mean, we weren't absolutely certain about it until summer 44, really. I mean, the first intimation we had of the commando order was um, well, two things. First of all, um, Major Barkworth, who was 2S SAS intelligence officer, was doing radio signals intercepts in Italy and he picked up, a, he was a fluent German speaker, and he picked up a German signal about, you know, the commander order and executing captured parachutists. So he had a hint of it there. And then a, 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 a British um, SAS guy called Hughes, he was on a raid in Northern Italy, cap- injured very badly, captured, um, taken to a German hospital, but then, you know, the Gestapo turned up and, and began interrogating him. And basically told him, "You will not uh, enjoy the Geneva Convention protections. Uh, you may have been captured in uniform, but that's irrelevant. Under Hitler's commander order, you are an illegal combatant, and you will be—you're you, going to be murdered." And Hughes didn't know if this was just a, a Gestapo tactic to try and make him talk, or you know if there was such an order. But when he escaped eventually and came back to the UK, of course he was debriefed and debriefed by Barkworth at the SAS. So Barkworth put two and two together: the radio intercept now Hughes' eyewitness testimony. thought, "Hmm, you know, this this is looking more and more likely." You know, of course, eventually they captured an actual written version of the commando order.
0: I can see you can't hear it, Damien, but it's just it's one um, it's one big rustle to right at, at this. <laughs> Sorry about that. It's but, okay. I i, I the problem is with the editing software. There's only so much of the audio you can clean up before you just lose the quality on the rest. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe if I move the screen around a bit as well. It's when you when you move your hands. It, okay. It, it it's um it might be like some sort of in. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Know. My technology skills are limited as it is, but it's some something when when you do that. Um, okay. should, should we um, talk about the golf? That was um. Because that was when the first wave of books actually written by special yeah. forces operatives started to be written, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Traditionally, in history, it was either a um, the, the biographies were written by some somebody else. Not 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 in every case, of course. But um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? But it
1: was, yeah. So the first Gulf War was when we had the, you know, the first SS memoirs, I guess, um, you know, emerge. Um, you know, you had the Billier's book, and then, of course, um, Andy Banab, no, not his real name, but his, his first hand, you know, accounts of uh, the Bravo mission, uh, and then all the books that followed Sabre Squadron and lots of others. Um, and personally, I, you know, I, I think that. There's been a tradition, a long tradition of these kind of stories being told by officers. I understand why that's the case. You know, if someone's, if if, if they're generally, I, I, I'm you know I, I'm, I'm generalising here, but generally they've got a higher education level and are perhaps more inclined to writing. Yeah, um but it's great to see the real, authentic voice of the soldier on the ground emerge. That's what. I think is, you know, positive about what happened from the Gulf War. And since then, you've had any number of books, you know, from Iraq and Afghanistan come out by, you know, by the soldiers at the coalface. And those kind of stories need to be told. Whether they've had help writing it or not is, is beside the point. You know, I mean, I've co-authored several books by guys who were, um, you know, uh, in the Iraq and Afghan war and, you know, worked very closely with them. But saying those voices emerges it it is only to the good and and it's you know it's those stories need to be told by the guys on the ground who got their boots on the ground or are fighting at the hard end of operations for the real nature of the combat that they're involved in and the experiences to come through and I think they do from those raw real you know soldier stories
0: and of course. Um, the Middle East—it was back to their roots, wasn't it? It was back to what they, the SS, were not just founded on these commando raids in the jeeps, um, but it was sort of their bread and butter as well, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. So when, when you know, the SS went in from the Saudi border and went across into Iraq in the jeeps, right early on in the war, if you can remember, and that was to hunt down the Scud missiles, the Scud missile launchers. Um, you know, because the uh, the Iraqis were lobbing the Scuds into Israel and they the fear was a third world war. So hence the SS went in scud hunting, you know, driving hundreds of miles across the Iraqi desert in open top jeeps with machine guns bolted onto them. There was very little different from what they'd done in World War Two. And, you know, it, that was the buzz in the regiment at the time that they were going in to, to basically repeat those epic desert raids of of sterling maine and 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 jock lewis and and their ilk um you know and 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 that's basically what they did on the ground in iraq i mean you know that very little had changed you know the technology the, the tactics the procedures um i suppose communications could have been slightly better you know they actually failed on multiple occasions you had helicopters airlifting some of the some of the uh, patrols in so they were airlifted forward of the front line but still basically it came down to you know mobility soldiering on the ground in open-top land rovers and and, and, and you know carrying out fire missions from those vehicles so yeah absolutely repeating what had been you know the founding fathers kind of modus operandi in, in north africa in 1942
0: 1943. and i'm guessing that we're probably seeing the end of these days now, these types of raids for the simple fact technology is, it's so much more advanced. The enemy's only got to have a drone in the sky with some infrared camera on it. And, and it, it it puts all the kind of cloak and dagger stuff um, into room 101. Is it, ha, ha, what are your thoughts on that, Damien?
1: Yeah, I suppose, in a sense, we are, but then again, perhaps, you know, in a sense, we're not, because, um, you know, you have that same technology now being used by those forces to, you know, further their own kind of operation. So you've got guys going in now on these kind of missions, carrying a little tiny drone with them that they can then send forward to spy on the enemy and inform their their own modus operandi on the ground. They're doing a lot of that kind of stuff. So... You know, um, I, personally, I think, that, and all the professionals I speak to say the same, that, that the role of irregular forces, special operations forces, whatever you want to call them, has never been greater because we are, you know, we're living in a more and more fragmented world where wars are less and less conventional conflicts between power blocks and superpowers and more fragmented, bitty, conflicts in, 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 you know, generally off the radar screen, not really seen by the rest of the world in places like Mali and, you know, places where, you know, we're fighting significant um, like long running battles against terrorist organizations. And those those kind of operations are going to be ongoing and we need more and more of those kind of forces. And perhaps we're going to have less and less of a role for the big conventional military engagements.
0: Hmm. Can we just take um a sidestep here? I wanted to ask if you read this book. We Were Soldiers Once and Young.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: I kind of knew the answer to my own my own question. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Um Yeah, um written by Hal Moore, Lieutenant General General Hal Moore, with his with his um with the journalist wasn't it Joe Galloway that's right yeah made into a film starring Mel Gibson which I watched for a second time funny enough because the first time I watched it I just thought it was some Vietnam film I didn't know if it was a good one or a second rate one then when I learned no it was actually made off the back of this book and that Hal Moore was an advisor on the film I went back and watched it again and my gosh, yeah. Considering they have to shrink uh, a story that went on for what three, three or four days or so, they had to shrink it into an hour and a half. It they they did quite a good job.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 a, it's a real um, craft adapting a book for the for the screen, whether that's as a TV drama series or as a movie. Um, you know, I've got several of my books being. I worked on by various film companies i've even you know scripted one of them myself and it is as you say you've got to take you know hundred thousand hundred fifty thousand words you know um lots of characters lots of events lots of time scales and truncate them into something which you can either have in an eight part tv series or a one and a half hour one hour forty five on on the big screen it's not easy to do and and it you know it's it's uh when you've got a good war movie there's nothing better um and so many of them are based upon books and the reason being that you know you've got something you've got all that research all that actuality that you can then inform the 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 production process that's why so many of these you know great films that you watch there's a book behind it that's Mm -hmm. that's the joy actually of one of the biggest joys i find of doing these kind of stories is you're like a hunter You're out there bringing in the raw, real story, and then, from that, lots of other, you know, people build, build bigger and better. You know, the film or the TV series or the stage play, whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, if you think of the sort of the films that came out post Second World War, the kind of John Wayne type type films, they were, I mean, they were nothing on what the films are like today, were they? They, That as far as I mean, they were more entertainment, weren't they? Yeah,
1: they were kind of triumphalist entertainment, right. Whereas now we have, you know, absolutely gripping, real, visceral, um, you know, slices of reality. And maybe that's just the, you know, the, the, the benefit of hindsight and perspective and good scholarly historians writing great accounts which can be adapted
0: yeah because it was um platoon wasn't it that was the first sort of movie that cut through the or cut to the chase about yeah. the, the actual horror
1: yeah
0: of well certainly a viet vietnam in fact actually first blood was a i mean when the director got handed the script to first blood and he went what a, a film about a veteran who's got mental health issues yeah they yeah. They, they, they didn't get that no that is the yeah that, that is why it's so clever yeah um,
1: that's right yeah well you know i guess at that stage they were still thinking about you know kind of john Wayne type um ways of telling these stories whereas people are much more sophisticated these days you know they they, they, they want the real story
0: yes very much so which ones of your books are going a uh, touchwood going to be turned into into the big screen so um
1: there's 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 a there's, a, there's a, quite a number so um i wrote the book with dave Hayhoe. it's all about trio about the um, bomb detection dog in afghanistan he's dave's the handler that won the dickin medal the animal victoria cross you know mm. and um that is uh, very very well you know advanced in terms of getting getting a movie made on it it's actually got um one of the one of the actors from Avatar is is writing a script and fronting up the movie. Um, it's being developed out of Australia. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, the challenge is finding the dog, you know, because this lovely, wonderful, handsome as hell, black Labrador trio, you've got to find a dog to play trio. But, you know, um, but there are specialist companies who provide um, anim- mm-hmm. you know animals for um, for movies and, and for the stage. Um, and then Churchill Secret Warriors, the book I wrote about... Um, you know the earliest days of special forces through to 1944 and the death of Anders Lassen. It's really Lassen, you know, who is the only member of the British SAS ever to win the VC. Uh, he was obviously Danish, but you know he was in serving the British SAS. It's really kind of him and his band of raiders. Um, so that's being developed as a as a three-part movie series by Jerry Bruckheimer Films and Paramount in the USA.
0: That's got your your book's got the iconic photo on the front, hasn't it? It has. Yeah, 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 that is That photo's the, great. What do you call it? Cat Ka- kaf Dan? Or, or... Ka- yeah, the, the uh the, the headdresses, the kafias. yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. and they've got all the machine guns that's pointing right. skyward. Yes, yeah, it's uh... great
1: photograph that, yeah. Yes. I think it's actually an LRDG photograph,
0: strictly speaking,
1: but you know, it's it's still an iconic image. Uh, so yeah, that's that's very well advanced. Um and uh Operation Relentless, the book I wrote about um, the former SAS guy, 23 SAS veteran, who was headhunted by the DEA to hunt down Victor Boot, who was the world's biggest arms dealer, the Russian former KGB guy. That's oh, being okay. developed by escape artists in the States as a TV drama series. Um, and there's, you know, there's there's, there's lots of other ones. Um, also being, um,
0: you know, Cobra uh, Gold he wasn't the guy that Nicolas cage portrayed in that yeah
1: yeah so lord of war really is based upon um victor boot he's the guy in lord of war this is the real lord of war this is the story of how the dea drugs enforcement agency in america used a former 23sas guy who's got the most amazing story himself mike snow good friend of mine now the most brilliant story um it's about how he put together a team to hunt down victor Boot and bring him to justice so Um, As I say, that's been developed by escape artists in the States. And that will be an amazing TV series. It's like, if you can imagine the series Narcos meets the Mm. Night Manager, the BBC series, it's kind of that.
0: That Lord of War, for any one of our younger friends watching, get on YouTube and see if you can find the intro, the opening scene to Lord of War, where the bullet is going from the factory to the gun. It's something like that. It's one of the it's just one of the best opening sequences or the well-filmed i should say to any any movie i think you're ever going to see um yes i had a question for you then and it, it slipped my mind again what was i going to ask um yeah uh, what was the operation barris book just so for people so it's listening. called operation certain death okay i'm
1: just uh, and you know there's been any number of attempts to make it into a movie and, you know, it's never really got off the ground. I'd love to see it made. Um, It's just one of the iconic stories that really should be told. Um, It was a British mission through and through. So that's one of the challenges, of course, you know, bringing money in from America and things like that. There's always a challenge when it's just a British mission, but hell, we should be telling these stories, you know, from a British perspective. Absolutely. Um, So yeah, that, that, that's Operation Certain Death.
0: Because film companies again now they seem they seem to have veered away from this completely changing the truth for, for the sake of Hollywood to actually focusing on the truth and trying to get the I mean even the actors when they when they're all made up they'd look just like the you know the protagonist in the book.
1: Yeah, too right, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the recent Churchill movie. I mean yeah. that's you know, he looks so like Churchill did. And it's an incredible movie. I've sat down and watched it with my kids who are, you know, one's 12, one's 15 and one's 17 and they were all gripped. You know, what an achievement to actually darkest hour, you know. Um what an achievement to actually get a group of kids like that to sit through a movie about what is basically a middle-aged man,
0: yeah? Yeah, that was Gary Oldman, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you got it. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, I heard lots of conflicting stories about Churchill. Probably best kept kept for another day. He was, uh, yeah, interest certainly was an interesting character. You know, he's a con- controversial character. You know, there's a
1: he's not he's nowhere near perfect. But as they say, come of the hour, come of the man. At that moment in time in World War Two, you know, after Dunkirk, when it was abject defeat on all fronts, and Hitler wanted to cut. A deal with us. He didn't want to go to, he didn't want to have to invade Britain. He wanted missed an armistice and he wanted to turn his attention to Russia, the Eastern Front, you know, Lebenstrom, living space for the German people. That was his aim, defeat of communism. And it would have been so easy to have cut a deal. But you know, Churchill stood firm. And that is the more you study that moment and the more you think about what impossible odds he seemingly faced and what he had on his shoulders, that was an incredible stand to have made.
0: Yes. can I ask Damien how how long does how long does it take you to write one of your books on on average? and do you still have the same passion for writing that you did when you were first published? So it takes longer
1: to research than to write. I mean I'd say it takes probably on average six months to research and then four or five months to write maybe even longer to research to be honest with you and if it's a world war ii story for example it depends how much help you can get you get from the families of those you're portraying so i've got a new book that comes out on the 29th of october called sas band of brothers it's a world war ii story um it's you know literally in the aftermath of dunkirk a 12-man patrol parachute deep behind the lines to blow up the German armor and stop it getting to the D-Day beaches to drive the, the allies back into the sea. And then the story develops from there. It's an absolute blindingly, it's a wonderful story. And, you know, I I almost think it's the best book I've ever, I've ever written. Um, And I, I've had so much help from the children, you know, of, of those involved. So the son of the mission commander, you know, through to, cousins, uncles, brothers, it's just been brilliant. And that's helped so much because, you know, that can help short circuit the research you need to do. But in terms of, you know, does it, does the experience become less enjoyable as time goes on? I can honestly say writing that book's been one of the most, enjoyable is too soft a word, you know? I'll tell you something. When I'm writing a book like SCS Band of Brothers and I'm in the zone, I'm in the trench, deep in the writing trench, Buzz you get from bringing these stories alive is incredible Mm -hmm. because if you're going to bring the story alive, you've got to become the people you're writing about. Can you imagine that? You've got to live their stories, you've got to get inside their heads and see the world and the war and the capture and the torture and -hmm. the escape and the vengeance from their perspective. Okay, and get into the emotions of the moment. Um, and so you know, it's it's a hell of a roller coaster ride for the writer, um so yeah, you know every time I write, it's like I don't know like, it's like you're jumping off a cliff, and I know well i'm I, I'm like I sit down i'm like, I'm gonna jump off the cliff, I'm gonna jump off the cliff, and I'm gonna be with these guys on this mission um that's how you bring history alive, and on, on, on a lot of levels, it's utterly exhausting because you can imagine you're gonna live that for five or six months, mm. But it's you know best job in the world. It's not a job. It's it's a it's a vocation.
0: Yeah, So the the only parallel I can draw there is when I I wrote a, two books in a fiction series, uh, predominantly set around Capa Verde, which is one of the few places I'd I'd not not been. And by the time I'd finished writing it, well, as you go through it, you you just sense these places that you're right you that you're creating and that you're writing about and you um almost felt like i've been to cap capa verde <laughs> there you go yes yes right r- really in the zone mm-hmm. and do you have a uh, do you do you write better in the mornings or the evenings or, or anything like that
1: yeah i mean i my, my my routine is get up very early so kind of half five you know at your desk by half six latest and then write through probably till three and then you know that's when i hit the low point how Um, do
0: you how do you focus that long especially in today's era of social media and emails and and the like
1: you've got to be very very strict with yourself when i'm writing you know i'm I'm divorced from all that stuff so you know after three o'clock you know i might spend half an hour doing emails you know facebook twitter social media but when you're writing you've got to be writing and nothing else you know people often ask you know if i'm at festivals and stuff like that literary festivals you know what's the secret to writing a book and it's a really really boring answer it's time at the keyboard Mm. that's the truth it's time at the keyboard and discipline you know that is the God's honest truth. You've got to be committed to sit down and put the hours in at the keyboard. It's absolutely vital to do that, especially when you're carrying a cast of characters. And a, like you said, a group of locations and, and, and narratives in your head. Yeah, you've got to keep it there all that time. So you've got to be rigorous.
0: It's a fascinating thing, writing, isn't it? I mean, I'm just about to publish my sixth book now. Congratulations. Wow. Well, yeah, I deserve it. <laughs> no, seriously, we, we deserve it because you must have this a lot. I know I get it. Oh, I'm going to write a book. And you think, no, you're not. Cause you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't have just said that to me. You'd, you'd have been at home writing it. And, and it is, it is a commitment. It, it's a belief in yourself. It's a big, you know, you've got to get the can I do this thing out the way right from the start. So yeah, actually, I, I can, but it, it's not going to happen unless I sit and commit. Um, so you've got to kind of deal with that self doubt. And then you've got all the people that tell you that they're going to read your manuscript and tell you if it's good enough. <laughs> and you're like, No, you're not, it's, it's going to be good enough. Otherwise, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to embarrass myself by publishing something. Uh, it can be selective, it can be for a certain audience um but yeah it is uh but isn't it great to have something that if i wake up at four in the morning and i just don't want to i don't feel like i've got to go back it. i can get out and put the computer on and start writing um on the other if it's a sunday afternoon and i'm at a loose end you can you can write it's just a nice thing to be able to like you said it's not it's not a job is it
1: it's not but then again I don't think it's for most people because let's be frank about it it's about sitting on your own in a room for days and days on end, and you know it's a very it's it's a lonely introspective profession yeah and i I think it's not for most people and and an awful lot of people think it's uh, you know well you know you you just write you know like it like, it's kind of like well that's easy every because everybody writes yeah everybody writes letters or you know they've they've written essays at school but when you've got to commit to spending you know six months writing every day pretty much you know it it is not for most people in my opinion
0: yeah yeah and how do you feel and this for anyone listen this is not literary snobbery or anything like that it's just that I worked hard. I've got English GCSE. So I had to t- basically completely teach myself everything. Mm-hmm. I think I've got a natural ability to write because I've always read books, mm-hmm. which I think it just gets in like your DNA or, or something, right? So when I sit down, I know what the reader needs to read for this book to be to make them keep turning the page. Mm-hmm. You, just, you just know it, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not to say I didn't have to learn. Com- the only thing I knew about punctuation was they taught us at school, put a comma when you pause, right? <laughs> Which is a total load of nonsense, you know, they don't teach you that there's actually five, I mean, five rules for a comma or something. And and then once you've learned those rules, then you can, you can work out when you can just ignore them or break them. Um, so yeah, completely self-taught. Um, then went through the process of getting a publisher, which I was very fortunate. My first book, a publisher phoned me up and said, "I heard you're writing a book, could we publish it which was just a a dream result. Ooh. then what, then the process of working with an editor and subsequently a proofreader, although generally that's that's done by the same person these these days. Um, and yeah, your final product that goes to market is a well written book it's got an audience or otherwise the publisher would have said sorry it's it's punctuated properly the grammar's correct it's engaging it's got a cover which looks like it represents the work the time and effort that's gone into the book and then you get your mate dave it goes chris i've written a book i'll buy yours if you buy mine." And you get you receive this self-published effort that the grammar and punctuation is not just abysmal it doesn't exist the idea of a semicolon is not anything like what a semicolon is supposed to be um and again i'm not saying this is snobbery i'm i'm all for encouraging people to do to to challenge their boundaries and and in a way it's it's great that the snobbery maybe is gone that through platforms like KDP that everybody can can have access to write a book but it it I'm not really sure what I'm trying to say Damien just it's it's just an interesting area isn't it you know and some of the worst written books because they're about a military subject they they, they sell loads.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um, it's a tough one, you know. I so I had a guy contact me about two weeks ago uh, on on social media, and he and he's writing, he's written the true story of a World War II veteran, and the veteran's still alive. So he's written it with him, and the veteran's got an amazing story, and. There are not many of these guys left alive so this is a special thing it's a many splendid thing right and uh he was about to self-publish and i said please don't do that there are x million books self-published a year almost none of them sell more than a few dozen copies it is the kiss of death and i got on zoom with him uh, you know out of the goodness of my heart there's nothing in it for me i just wanted to what i actually wanted i wanted the world war ii veteran story to light the world up i wanted his story known it's such a great story right and i said don't do that because it will kill it dead Mm -hmm. And the reason it will kill it dead is that publishers will never touch it if it's been self-published for obvious reasons and it's just going to be lost in the mass chatter of self-published books so i hope i've convinced him that you know he should go the traditional publishing route the route you've just described, and actually try and make this thing something special. Um, yeah, I'm all for um, encouraging authors from all walks of life, and I get sent—you can imagine—I get sent manuscripts all the time. Got to be honest with you, most of the time they are unreadable. But there's there's the exception that you know that, that, that disproves the rule. So. I got sent a manuscript by a former SAS guy about a year ago. He's former Kiwi SAS. Um, and it's about his time um, as a private security contractor in Iraq post 2003. And I sat down to read it thinking, yeah, I'm probably going to get one chapter in and give up. Man, I was gripped. Mm. Now this thing's 250,000 words long. That's, Two and, a half, two and a half times the size of a normal book. Mm. I read it in about four nights, right? There was no punctuation, pretty much. It was stream of consciousness. But the guy is a born storyteller. I, I, I literally, at the end of it, thought, how in the name of God did he write that? Okay? So I then contacted him, and he came down to see me in, in Dorset. And I sat him down, and I said, Harry, where did that come from? Now, the guy's half Mary, right? Uh, and and we got chatting, and I, what it, we basically boiled it down to was the Maoris traditionally sit around the fire at night and tell each other stories. You grow up being told stories by your parents. Storytelling is in the DNA. Yeah, mm. he's just a natural storyteller. It's like you were saying, you might not have had a a, a great formal education in English, but you read books. Yeah, storytelling's in your DNA for that reason. Same with this guy, and that book is Barry's book is it's just it's utterly fantastic we're going to get that published that will be a classic in due course uh, do you know the book shantaram
0: not a good topic with me no <laughs> and we won well, well what it is i'm just i'm just talking honestly here is yeah i as i said worked my ass off to write my first memoir uh, yeah da, da, da. there we go yeah uh, eating smoke i've been through three publishers with it and and maybe i'll come on to explain what effect that had on me and uh yeah um and one thing i did in it was i i just told the truth i i i didn't mind exposing myself it's about my drug history and mm-hmm. and uh, mental illness and and i just happened to be working for the hong kong triads while while all this was going on so it it kind of gel for a bit of a biz, un, unusual story let's say but it's all the truth right yeah, yeah in fact if you read it there's nothing in it that you'd go this couldn't be true i mean it's it's not like i got the girl or anything that that just doesn't happen
1: yeah
0: but one of the things i get the most is oh I like your book, You Should Read Shantaram, which yeah. I've actually got over there on my... It's still on my un, unread list. Yeah. And absolutely no disrespect. I would never disrespect another author. But it was... They did try to publish Shantaram as, as a memoir. Yes, that's right, yeah. And then it was called out yes. in fiction, right? Yeah. And And let's just say it's not the only book that's been... What I'm trying to say, Damien, it's quite hurtful when you worked your ass off to tell an honest story and then people are favoring a book, which it's not a memoir, it's fiction. It's like I could have fictionalized my book and I could have killed a hundred triads and you know, slept with fifty women and and all the all the sort of dagger in the teeth stuff that people really seem to buy into these days as a, as opposed to the truth. Um so again yeah not it's not i'm not it's not sad i don't care i'm really happy with my writing career where it's got me um um sorry i just (laughs) went went off on one but look look you know uh, uh,
1: all books should be absolutely upfront about whether they're non-fiction fiction fiction, or something in between that needs to be there front and center of the offering from the word go because the the reader needs to know what he's buying yeah
0: couldn't agree more especially you know, if servicemen are getting servicemen and women, I should say, but predominantly servicemen in the books I've read are getting killed because their children have got to read that book and parents have got, and it might be the last knowledge that they have of their, their loved one. And this is where it, I think things start to cross lines. Can we say, and yeah. um, Yeah. Interesting one. Do you, do you stick with the same publisher now? Do you have a sort of good relationship with one or do you have to shop around?
1: No, I'm pretty much um, with my current publisher for now for you know any number of years. And, um, you know, we've got a great team there and we've got a great thing going. So uh, it's it's highly unlikely that I'll be moving from there. You know, I, I love working with them. They're hugely enthusiastic about stories. So oh, I'm in a great home and uh, I'm very lucky to be there, I have to say
0: yeah that's great because i kind of have to say i got a bit disheartened after my third publisher um to say none of them did any promotion for me whatsoever would be an understatement right and okay i i i get that that is the marketplace now but to see your hard efforts actually slammed into the gutter by people that are more than happy to take you know a, a cut of the the, the profits I, I I found it really hard hard to deal with it was almost the way I explain it, it's like carrying a baby for nine months and then someone just walking into your life going I'll take that and they wander off and you you can't even say anything right I, I um. So much so that I form my own publishing company. Mm-hmm. And even though some of my friends are getting, like, a, I won't say any names, but my friend who's recently published a, an adventure memoir got 80,000 um, pounds up front. You know, what Ooh. do you call it? The, the... the advance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the advance. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I It's like for me, you can keep your eighty thousand pound i want my son to have full control of my uh-huh. my, my my library not, might not be going in in any great directions but but uh i kind of think it will i think i've still got sort of i still think my career has yet to take off in in, uh-huh. in in lots of respects really and the, i think the podcast is kind of highlighting that but um yeah i was just like for me it's not about it's not about the money as long as I can pay my, my bills oh. it's about having that, that control because it, it was really painful. I have to say when you start thinking about taking a contract out on your publisher, <laughs> yeah. you, 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 you know, you know, um, yes, I am joking, but I'm sort of not joking. Um, yeah. Do you have a, a, obviously, no, I don't want you to slag off your current publisher, but have you had anything like that in the past?
1: Yeah, there are, you know, I've had books orphaned, for example. So, you know, it's it's commissioned by one publisher, you know, and then they leave. I've had that happen several times and there's no interest at the publisher anymore in your book. Not because it's not a great book, but because the guy commissioned, it, it's no longer there. And then you've got to rescue it yourself. You've got to do all the PR yourself all the you've got to promote it yourself, you know. Um, that's the vagaries of the industry. And, um, you know, I'm sure it'll happen again. I hope not. But yeah, things these things happen.
0: Yeah, just the way it is. You get a real feel for the market in the end, don't you? And what the industry is, it's. it's again, since since Amazon came along, it just changed the landscape so much. Um, I think a lot of people still labor under what what you could call the old rules. They think it's going to be sign that contract and they'll be a millionaire and of course um whenever they say people write to me and say chris i've published my first book what do i do i say write 10 more as quick as you can because if they're if somebody's out there talking about one of your books you'd far rather they were out there talking about 10 to 10 people who talk to 10 people and that's very good good advice well it's just i mean you in this day and age to make it as an author you have to be prolific that's yeah. that's just yeah. you know i now i've seen people do it from scratch with no um history like yourself or myself when we've got stuff we can write about right yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've seen people come out of uni and say i want to be an author they've written their first fiction book they then made it into a series they then you can buy the like a yep. g on amazon yeah, yeah, yeah they've then got their e- their email their email list built building and building then their artwork has just got better and better and the next thing i don't know how they do it because it takes me a year to write a book um, but i am very consummate you know i i i, I want to edit my book mm-hmm. um, i want it what i mean is i want it to be that good before it goes to an editor or a proofreader And these folks have—they've just done. They just knock out a book every three months now, and I—I've no idea (laughs) how they do it. But they've just got—they've oiled their their machine and they they hone their skills, and it's it's phenomenal. But you really do have to be prolific if you want to pay your bills out of it. If you just want to do it for fun or as as a great achievement, I I'd recommend that anybody anybody does it and. I think you would as well, Damien. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's it, like we say, it's a vacation. It's not a job. So
0: yes, yeah. Well, can I thank you very much? Yeah, thank you. It's been, um, been great. It's been a blast. Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, your knowledge, your depth of knowledge is is phenomenal and uh, and very valuable because these stories will get lost, don't? Won't they? If they're not yeah. chronicled? You know? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, got to capture
0: them. Yeah, it's something that's good about the podcast, albeit digital. Yeah, absolutely, simply adore. So, I get to chat to people like Robin Horsewell and 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 uh, you know someone who's on the balcony and yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, it's these these, these stories and and the Falkland stories are the probably the most touching because I don't think many people went down there and didn't get damaged.
1: No, you're right, absolutely. Um, yeah, you
0: know, or or they come back incredibly humble and they think. You know they say I just did my job, and it's Ooh. like, yeah, but it's a job people uh-huh. would like to hear about, and and I think need to hear about it. Uh-huh. So, so, Damien, just stay on the line when I say goodbye. So, thank yep. you again. Um, I will put put the link for your Amazon page below the videos. Probably the easiest link, so everyone can go and see the books that we've talked about. All uh-huh. of which um, will just be ama- amazing um, reads. You can see that. To our friends at home, big love to you all. Please look out yourselves. Thanks for watching another episode of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. If you could like and subscribe, it will help us to do more. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris Chris.Thrall. Thank you.